You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with David McLean. David teaches philosophy at Rutgers Newark and Molloy College in New York. His research interest is in business ethics, Africana philosophy, and American philosophy. His latest book is Wall Street, Reforming the Unreformable and Ethical Perspective. In this episode, we talk Wall Street and the poor, money and the philosophical life, and hip-hop and consumerism. If you ever wanted a philosophical view into money, you want to stay tuned. Hello, David, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm fine, Maisha. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. David, how did you get interested in philosophy? I suppose um, the way I really got interested in philosophy uh, uh, came about when I was rummaging through um, a, a library shelf in the philosophy section um, when I was an undergraduate my first year, and I came upon a book by uh, Sarvapelli Radhakrishnan, which was Indian philosophy. It's a classic work on Indian philosophy. And I just started reading through it, and I was just really impressed by what I was reading. didn't understand much of it, but I was really impressed by the um, all of the issues that were addressed, the subjects covered. Uh, and also, I like the fact, although I could not uh, have articulated it at the time, that uh, the philosophical stuff was blended into the religious and spiritual dimension, okay. uh, and I like that. And the, the other, you know, you know, my my um, my brother and sister had um, a copy of Bertrand Russell's um, History of Western Philosophy laying around. I remember flipping through that, and then I guess the other big influence on me was um, Thoreau. I was reading Walden, and I had a book of quotes from Walden that really impressed me a lot. So that was kind of my introduction. I guess I was about I guess I was about 15, 16 when I found the Walden and the Russell and then um, um, you know the Radhakrishna when I was in college. So I, I'm, I'm interested because we're going to talk about this a little later but you are not only a philosopher but business is your thing as well. What kind of motivate you to get a PhD in philosophy and pursue an academic profession? Well, it was a calling in a way, um, and being an academic or being tied to the academy in some way was just something I had to do. It was uh, I, I was completely restless about not pursuing uh, graduate work, um, so I, I I just felt I had to do it. I was an undergrad um, religion major when I was a uh, a kid. I went through about two or three, three about three years of fundamentalism on my own. Um, you know, I was also very interested in the sciences. I love science. So I was able to find this sort of like acid trip, if you will, of blend, blending religion, uh, my my interest in Christianity with, with my interest in the science. And I just had a really wonderful time, you know, head exploding time with that. And I just couldn't let that go. So business is, isn't anything that I'm really passionate about. It's um, I fell into uh, a consulting practice. After a number of years on Wall Street, 
essentially making money uh, paying my way through college. So I was never really attracted to Wall Street uh, in any real way. It was uh, my first job out of high school was a Wall Street job. And every time I needed some dough in my pocket, I just went back to <laughs> Wall Street for for some other back office, uh, low low level gig. And one thing led to another, and I wound up um, forging a consultancy, um, you know, in 1992. And I've been a consultant ever since then. So this kind of makes a segue into talking about Wall Street. Why does what happens on Wall Street matter? And particularly, why should the working class and the poor be concerned about what happens on Wall Street? Well, I mean, uh, I think that I can answer that question with another question. Why Why would anyone be in, interested in the space program? <laughs> you know, I mean, all of these things are connected. If if you think that, if one thinks that is, that um, Wall Street is irrelevant, and by Wall Street, let's be clear to people that are not used to um, having a philosopher talk about this topic, um, by Wall Street, we're talking about financial services industry, which is a collection of industries from commercial uh, banking through investment banking, uh, through money management. It's a whole bunch of different um, uh, industries in some sense or activities. Um, and they all are relevant to everybody's life. Um, you can't get a car without – most people anyway – you can't get a car without financing it. So, well, so the financial services industry is part of your life when you buy a car. If you have a pension um, uh, 401k – uh, you may not be interested in what's in it. Uh, it may be like metaphysics to you, but in fact, your money, your retirement money, is being invested with Wall Street firms. So, and we know, um, given what happened in two thousand seven eight um, with the financial crisis, that Wall Street can actually wreak havoc uh, on the lives of of very wealthy people and very very poor people. So, after the crisis uh, in two thousand eight. Um, there were people that committed suicide. There were people that lost their homes. There were people that became destitute. Um, there were obviously attendant to all those things are mental health uh, problems. So it's all it's all interconnected. And one of the mistakes I think people make, um, especially uh, people who are you know you know focused on one area, whether it's the academy or or business or whatever is that they don't see these interconnections and I think it's in some sense just the job of the public intellectual to, to make those interconnections plain. So let's talk about the crash right and and when it happened you know this this rhetoric of, of they need to be held accountable can Wall Street I and mean, particularly when it deals with with corruption and greed particularly you know you think about the crash and predatory lending lending to people that they knew could not pay it back and, and just create havoc do you think Wall Street can be fixed from the inside and through regulation or can the people or the public have a hand in, in fixing it when Wall Street becomes corrupt? Um, Wall Street has, you know, Wall Street lends itself to bad acting um, for a variety of reasons. So maybe we'll get to that in a bit. But I think that um, you're always going to need to have regulation. There's always been regulation of Wall Street. And although back in the days of the crash of 29, that is, uh, the regulation was scant. Um, you had a tremendous uh, sort of nod by the courts and government in general uh, to uh, essentially the robber baron classes, 
Um, you know, I have my dog here on my on my lap, so you might hear <laughs> some noise. Um, but but since then, I mean, since especially 1933, um, there has been a lot of regulatory reform on Wall Street, and it's just snowballed ever since. So right now, as someone who deals with regulation on the ground, in fact, I just I wrote a comment letter just yesterday to a regulator asking for them to slow down. Um, that's how thick regulation has gotten. Now, uh, part of my comment to that regulator was that, you know, you're basically playing at the edges. What Wall Street really needs is reform, uh, and that's cultural reform. I don't think that what is uh, – that passing regulations like Dodd-Frank, which I'm sure you've heard about, uh, is going to do the job. But what, what needs to happen on Wall Street is a sort of mindset change, a paradigm change in how people think about what they're doing there. Um, so moving from a model of uh, self-indulgence uh, to a model of service, or what I call a ministerial model. And there's no reason that shouldn't happen. Um, uh, you know, uh, there are doctors um, uh, in Europe, all throughout Europe, that don't look at what they do as something that should lead to a tremendous amount of wealth creation, personal wealth creation. They look at what they do uh, as public service. So anything can be changed. Um, it just any culture, or any industry can be changed. Um, it, it just depends on whether or not there's going to be a sort of tipping point where uh, there are enough people talking about the need for the change and enough uh, people grasping the need for the change to affect the change. And you know some of that's top down, some of that's bottom up. And my job, and uh, you know, I just wrote a book on Wall Street reform, is to sort of just you know, make that as as plain as I possibly can, because the the dominant discussion right now, even with Elizabeth Warren talking about Wall Street reform, is a coercion model where she's going to beat these people into submission, and I, I think that some of that is necessary. Um, believe me, I've seen bad things, but I really think that if you really want to reform uh, anything, you have to go back to Aristotle to some degree. And change habits, and those those habits include habits of mind. Uh, so you know, I I think that those that are inside the system, and by the way, there are many good people on Wall Street. They just they just happen to work there. Like some people happen to work in universities, and other people happen to work work in agriculture. Um, they they would love to see a change because the the Wall Street has been smeared so badly that many people who are accountants and lawyers and back office uh, clerks, you know, uh, are almost embarrassed to be associated with it, you know. So it's uh, – and it's, a, it's also a, a necessary industry. You can't – you know, the world has always had banks. It always will. What is your perspective on Occupy Wall Street? What do you think was its strengths and what do you think was its weakness? Well, um, when I saw when I saw Occupy Wall Street, um, I actually went down to Zuccotti Park uh, in 2011 in October. I was really, really intrigued by it, and I actually told my wife. Uh, in fact, I brought her down and my sons down. I said, well, because this is a historic uh, situation here. Like 9/11, I also drove into uh, Manhattan uh, on 9/11 because I realized I, it, you could just feel the history. Yeah, uh, that was unfolding in front of you, and I made sure it was my business to get down there a few times. It reminded me of the demonstrations against the WTO in Seattle in 1999. I was um, intrigued by seeing so many young people actually get animated about 
uh, I mean, to the point of breaking, you know, storefront windows about something, something as abstract as the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and what it was doing uh, in poor countries around the world, essentially, uh, as the protesters put it, and of course, with some, with some credibility there, you know, doing the bidding of the rich countries at the expense of the poor. And Occupy, you know, made me feel similar, similarly to what I was watching in, uh, you know, in 1999. So I went down there. I saw some interesting things. I saw a bunch of old leftists want to, you know, sort of co-opt the movement, you know. Uh, that was kind of cute to watch. <laughs> but I saw some very, very, very serious young people in their 20s and, and 30s uh, really able to articulate the the inequality in the country pretty well, um, but I soon discovered um, that they were confused uh, and that they had no um, no uh, set of proposals to speak of. It was just sort of a, a sort of ham-handed uh, uh, creed de quoi, if you will. Uh, I'm pronouncing that right uh, against um, against this inequality and against in, uh, financial. Inst- so the so the question was well what what do you propose and um, uh, they had nothing to propose to propose in detail anyway in fact Barney Frank uh, who was a congressman uh, during the Occupy movement he retired since you know was basically very sympathetic as I was uh, to the movement or the proto movement I should say but asked the same questions like you know you guys uh, think that you can affect change by turning your back on normal politics. And you can never turn your back on normal politics. You're not above normal politics. And they acted like they were. And so they didn't want to have any real engagement with uh, institutions that could actually affect change. And, uh, you know, some of the things that they were saying were were basically indicative of people that did not know how the system worked. So it wasn't a surprise uh, that it sort of floundered. We could have had some real reforms uh, take place, much more than what we got in Dodd-Frank, even much more than we got uh, from Obama in the Consumer Protection Bureau, with uh, which Elizabeth Warren uh, pushed very hard to get done. But, you know, uh, we missed it. It was, a, it was a galvanizing moment. They had the countries, they had the world's attention because, as you know, the Occupy movement traveled, traveled through Amer- uh, through a, throughout a number of American cities and through into countries around the world, and it just fizzled. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that the that the uh, that it can't be revived. What I'm saying is that if it is revived again, it should be revived by um, uh, in dialogue with people who know how to get change uh, effected. To someone who is focused on living a philosophical life, a self-examined life, or and or virtuous life, how should they view money, or what should their relationship with money be? I think that um, money is extremely important. Uh, this is the old adage from you know you're you're a seminarian so you there's the old adage you know that money is the root of all evil that's what people think but it is not that's not what it says I think you mm-hmm. know what what it what it real what what was really said yeah uh, it was the love of money uh, that's the 
root of all evil. And, and, and it, it, isn't, it isn't even just the love of money that's the root of all evil. It is the sort of what, uh, sort of telepathic, to borrow a, uh, a term from uh, a business ethicist named Goodpaster, uh, telepathic interest in money, where basically the pursuit of money uh, makes everything, almost everything else, fall to, this, to the periphery. That's the root of all evil. But, uh, you know, there's a problem in, in believing that money is per se problematic. Uh, uh, it is not problematic. It is, it is fluid for life. And, uh, and, and I think and everybody knows it, the, the most ardent leftist to the most reactionary conservative. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, I, I think so if that's the case, if, if, if money is something that one needs – and it's almost axiomatic to you know should you should go without saying that that's true, then one needs to be disciplined in, in how one handles it. One one should understand that there is an ethics of money and money making, uh, saving and investing that that one you know uh, uh, owes to oneself to explore because um, you know uh, there's a lot, especially in the African American community, we have a huge problem with wealth, especially after the crisis. Uh, you know, so much, uh, so much uh, wealth in African American communities went up in smoke, partly because of of uh, predatory predatory lending and the subprime mortgages uh, that could not be afforded, lost jobs, uh, bankruptcies that occurred, uh, the, the destruction of credit that took place at the same time that people were losing their homes and, and their jobs. Prior to the crisis, the the ratio of white wealth to black wealth. Uh, from household to household, that is, was 12 to 1. That is, whites had 12 times as much wealth on average as, a, as the average black household. Now it's 20 or more to 1 post the crisis. One needs to have a tremendous amount of respect for the dollars that they earn. One of the principal things that needs to be done is to save. You know, it's. Uh, I was asked once, I was on, a, on an Urban League uh, panel, a number of um, people on the panel um, uh, were were uh, you know involved with investments in, in one one capacity or, or the other, and when it came time for me to to speak after hearing everybody talk about you know balanced investing and diversification and all these kind of things, uh, you know I said you want you want to know how to get wealthy? It's very simple: save your money. <laughs> right. Um, you don't worry about what return. What difference does it make what return you're getting on your mutual fund if you win? If you're going to buy a pair of Ferragamo loafers every Friday, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any difference what your return is. You you have to look at money holistically, uh, and and understand that saving is the beginning of investing. If you don't have any money, you can't invest it. So um, uh, it, you know it's it's a critical thing. It it, it allows for one to take advantage of opportunities. For example, we are going through right now a very volatile period in the stock market because people are worried about whether or not China is going to grow at the same rate that was thought you know, uh, prior to this month. Um, uh, people are worried about when the Fed's going to raise interest. Well, the market is extremely volatile. That means that it's that there are just these tremendous swings in the Dow and the S&P indexes as you, as you can see every day on the news. And do you know who's making money? And I can tell you who's making money. I can tell you who's losing money. The people that are making money are the people who buy on those declines and sell on the rises of the market. 
Hmm. When those are the people making money, but in order for you to make money that way, you have to have it to invest in the first place. Yeah, the people that are losing money are in the market, or people who are panicking because they never were told how to manage money and what to do with it and how to handle situations like this. So they they panic. The little investor panics and they sell. They sell low because they they fear that the the market won't come back again. This is just one example of how it is that people who are not used to money need to learn how to, number one, save it, and then learn what to do with it once once they have it. Uh, what I do with my money, uh, you know, not to brag because I could do much more, is that when I have someone in need that asks for money, I give it to them, whether or not it's a loan or whether it's just a gift. It could be someone that, that's, that's trying to get an apartment. It could be someone who is just down and out. You know, I give money to various charities, and I like to be able to do that, right? Maybe one day I won't be able to anymore. You know, it gives you that flexibility to be of assistance to people, to family members, to friends, to people that are in, in jeopardy. Uh, it doesn't mean that you live your life so that you can continue to make lots and lots of money because then you can become unbalanced. But, you know, I can't, I, I can't emphasize enough how um, – in the African-American community, we need a culture uh, of saving and investment, and we need it really, really fast because right now we are in dire straits when it comes to how we treat money, how we deal with money. I was talking to an African friend of mine, and we were having kind of a typical African and African-American conversation where I was oh, trying to learn more about <laughs> – Well, I think, you know, I come up – that happens a lot for me. You know, I get their perspective about what they think of us. They hear my perspective of what we think of them and try to answer all these questions together. But I remember talking to, to her and she was telling me about the perception for Africans, for a lot of Americans, that first of all, they're rich. Right. And then right. as far as and she doesn't speak for all Africans, but another thing that she shared with me was African-Americans are a very materialistic Right. And it just had me thinking about, of course, right. She told me that the way in which they know this is by the media. Right. And the media, particular rap videos, hip hop culture shows just black Americans as being very materialistic. Right. And you think about the songs, you think about the jewelry, you think about the cars, everything that's in, in, in the media videos, etc. kind of give away this materialistic kind of concept. Do you think and I and I had my response to her, but I'm, I'm interested in what you have to say. Do you think hip hop primarily made up of African-Americans, particularly African-American men, do you think this materialism is a side effect of living in a capitalist society or do you find something else going on there? You know, I, I, one has to be charitable with respect to uh, the state of African-America. You know, uh, while one could be critical of uh, a number of the conditions that we find ourselves in, you know, one also has to understand the history. And part of that history is a history of deprivation. Right, doing without, being forced to do without, right? In a in a in a culture that is a consumerist culture, which is that that has bought into the ideology of consumerism, not just capitalism. Now, the word capitalism gets overused, but it's uh, I think the better word is consumerist. So in in this consumerist culture, where you have people where the, where the 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 sort of mandate is to go out and increase GDP by constantly being a consumer, and you're watching everyone around you being enticed into this consumption activity, this frenzied consumption activity, and you're unable to participate in that. Well, then you're unable to participate in a big part of the culture and the sort of of uh, the sort of meme of the culture, right? This, this this notion of consumer being a consumer. So, I mean, so you so you so you see that we have um we're judged because we 
and participate. We are, we are judged as being unable to participate. So it's not a big surprise, just to get to the point here, it's not a big surprise that when we can participate, we go crazy. Yeah, yeah. We we become hyper hyper consumers, and some of this stuff gets captured in very old saws, like you know buying expensive sneakers, which I remember back in the seventies, uh, uh, you know, where buying Pumas and Adidas was a big deal. On that, you can't walk in the basketball court without <laughs> your Pumas and Adidas on, and you certainly don't want them smudged. Uh, and so your identity was was partly formed around you know what you had on your feet. A lot of that's quite understandable, and I think you know one of the things Cornell West says if you going to lead a people, you have to love a people. Um, I, but I do think that there's something to that. And, and, and I have a great deal of sympathy for African Americans who, who have gotten caught up in consumerism. Having said that, it's destructive. It is something that uh, I th- and these are these are broad generalizations. You and I both know people that are not caught up in this, and I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to sort of paint everybody with the same brush. But but it's destructive on a number of levels. One is you define success simply on the basis of one's ability to consume, right? So one of the things you see in hip-hop culture is the, the pinnacle of what anybody should be aiming for if you look at what comes out of a lot of hip-hop culture is the ability to, to, to purchase high price tag uh, goods yeah. and services. That is somehow the pinnacle of, of, of a life. Well, it certainly isn't. Right, it certainly isn't. It, you, there is a lot of uh, there's a there's a great belief in uh, in a kind of um, idolization of of symbols of wealth without understanding what wealth really is, or for that matter, what power really is. You know, a lot of the false bravado, for example, that you see in hip hop culture, and especially hip hop music and videos, is a kind of false machismo, uh, false bravado that I think uh, shows an ignorance of what power really is and what wealth really is. You know, I. I I think this all needs to be addressed as part of the problem that we have to deal with in the in the African American community. I, I remember uh, once I was I was at um, Lincoln and I was invited to come by uh, I think uh, Niara Sadarkasa was the president of Lincoln at the time and her son Michael had just graduated and we were working on some African investment ideas together. So a lot of Africans were there at Michael's um, birthday party there at Lincoln and they came up to me and they says you know. Um, why why is it that you know the united states uh, uh that american businesses come to africa and they don't help to build the community and so it just shows it just shows i was really uh, you know uh, surprised by that the expectation that that would happen hmm. now i say that to say that for African Americans, if we use the dollars that we earn more wisely, we would be in a better position to help at least uh, our own communities in, in in a variety of different ways. Uh, I, I decry a lot of hip hop culture, although I don't want to paint it with a too broad a brush for for being both the product of of uh, of people who want to abuse images and the the realities of of the lives of African American people for their own fortunes and there's a ton of that that goes on and not not all of it is coming from outside the community right some of it's some of it is done inside the community and I decry uh, depictions of African Americans that I see on for example, BET or in some of these shows on TV that that show a kind of uh, black yuppie kind of materialism, where the only thing that matters essentially comes down to what car you're driving, what your address is in Atlanta, and how much sex you're having. That basically is it exhausts black life. That's a tragedy, right? It's uh, it's 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 got to be addressed, and but it can't be addressed through just simply 
you know, being hostile and critical. It's got to be addressed with an understanding of how it is that this came about. Otherwise, we're not going to fix it. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the public intellectual project that you have going on, Pepion. Why did you decide to do it? What exactly is it? What is your vision for it? Well, Papillon, um, at least that's the, the name for it at the moment, Papillon 2030, is grew out of a, a sense of, of um, desperation about what is happening to the African-American community. Um, in the actual writings that I've, I'm doing uh, around this notion, and I'll get to what it is in a minute, uh, I use the word demographic and not community, and I do that for specific reasons. Uh, maybe I'll have a chance to get into that. I'm not sure. We have time for it. But uh, I, I've been, ever since the uh, the the recent deaths, shall we say, because there's always been police killings and and tragedies and 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 uh, black on black crime and drive by shootings, and it's just horrendous. But something told me that recently, given all of the, all of the statistics that point downward for African American people, that unless there was a massive um, communal effort to address all of the issues at once, we're going to be sitting here having a, a, a similar conversation about the, the, the bad state of African Americans uh, uh, and African American communities 20, 30, 40 years from now. So I, I decided that after re- really wrestling with it, because I don't, I don't consider myself any kind of mos- Moses kind of <laughs> type person, <laughs> uh, but I wasn't, hearing, I wasn't hearing anybody that was saying what I was thinking which is that without a massive collective effort to address all the, and when I say all the problems, I mean all the problems. I mean problems of obesity in the African-American community, the problems of health care disparities, health care literacy, uh, problems of wealth in general, wealth and investment and savings. We just talked a little bit about that. HIV infection rates, which are disproportionately high among African-Americans uh, compared to the rest of the population. Um, obviously, we don't even need to talk about incarceration, which by itself is an Armageddon scenario because of, of the, even though Congress is working to, to deal with some of the laws that require mandatory minimum sentences, we still have the problem of all of those people that are in jail, right, in prisons, that are going to be coming out without the ability to get jobs, without the ability to get decent housing, who are going to wind up being frustrated and many, many of them wind up recidivating. Yeah. We, we talked about that a couple summers ago. I'm, I'm desperately afraid that we're not going to make it. And in order for us to address some of the, uh, all of these issues, frankly, we need a national movement. Uh, and so Tavis Smiley has this notion of covenant. I hadn't read his book until I started thinking about Papillon. Um, you know, his book is The Covenant with Black America. Yeah. It's filled with great stuff. The, prob- the problem with the, the, the book, and I, and I don't want to be un- unduly critical of it because it's a fantastic book, um, is that there is, no, there, is, there is no target date and there's no real plan. It's the book filled with essays about specific issues. There's a follow-up book, as you may know, um, called The Covenant in Action, which is sort of anecdotal and some data about what people are doing around the covenant notion. But again, it's it's diffuse. It's it, So what I'm, what I'm calling for now and the plan that I'm working on with a group of, um, of activists, thinkers, lawyers, is a target date plan for the year 2030. And I get that from the UN Millennial Development Goals, um, to sort of cut poverty in half by 
2015, and those goals were set in 2000, 1999, really, but 2000, rolled out by um, the former UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan. The, uh, the Millennium, Deve- Millennium Development Goals were largely achieved, but they were largely achieved because the UN acted as a hub, a center for the push forward to achieve those goals. And it laid out specific goals to be achieved. So you need a plan. The plan must be detailed and the plan must be data-driven. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere. It can't be top-down. It must, it must be something that activates everybody in the community and across the country to do their part in addressing specific, each of the specific areas that are problems in the African-American community. The other thing about uh, what's different between what I'm doing and what Tavis Smiley did is that I actually believe that a written covenant statement is very important. There is no written covenant statement in Smiley's book, and, uh, and I don't think that one was contemplated. But I think it's a very useful tool. So long as one signs up, signs a covenant statement that they actually promise to do their part over the next 14, 15 years to help effect change in each of the areas that are causing problems in the community, I think that makes one self-accountable, uh, especially where, where there are uh, reporting mechanisms where if you sign up to do this, we're going to ask you to report in every so often and what you're doing. So my 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 dream is that, frankly, I, I don't even need to be in the, on the scene, frankly. I just want to get this thing going. My dream is that millions of people will sign up. Millions of people will sign a covenant statement after a warning that you should not sign it unless you plan to follow through because we're talking about life and death matters here. And that it will be something new that has never happened before. To see from the inside out African-American people, part of the African-American demographic that is pushing, putting their shoulder to the stone and pushing together to change all the things that we're seeing on the news, understanding that we don't have to just make ourselves better, but there's no reason, for example, that the population that does the best, that gets the best math and science course can't be African-American kids. And so we need to start thinking about the fact that those things are really possible, but they're not possible if we're atomized and pushing in separate directions and and oftentimes against one another. So I, I bring no real ego to this. I'm frankly, like you, exhausted exhausted already <laughs> you know uh i i just i just want to i just can't leave the planet i can't die knowing that that this idea could have actually made a difference and i didn't even try uh when i see as you see uh little boys shot to death uh, by police officers every death has a, an effect on me i don't think people realize what a death is um but a death is the end of a life that is uh, infinitely valuable. Um, a piece of God dies every time a, a young boy is shot in the in the in the hood, whether it's by a police officer or one of his or one of his uh, cohort member of his cohort. I I can't just watch that anymore. Otherwise, I'm just going to become a quietist and just turn my back because I can't do it by myself. And and talking about these issues. Um, uh, in silos isn't going to change. You know, the, the problems in our schools are not issues that can be discussed in silos. You can't change conditions in schools unless you change conditions in communities, unless you change conditions in households, unless you change conditions in the kinds of teachers you bring in, unless you change the environmental factors that surround the kids' schools, you know, unless, unless the kids have um, uh, adequate nutrition, unless they have uh, an ability to have 
fearless play in their own neighborhoods unless they have the ability to know that there will be somebody at home taking care of them. Um, so all of those things have to be in place. No, but none of us individually can make that happen. We all have to do it. What is the one book that you constantly go back to and why? I would say the, the, con- the book I constantly go back to um, is Emerson's uh, essays. I would say basically Emerson's works because I bought um, – I have a manuscript edition uh, that I spent a fortune on of, uh, of Emerson's work f- from 1903. Um, but, yeah, I'm a, big, I'm a big lover of Emerson um, partly because um, uh, he blends a, a number of different uh, – um, uh, I guess virtues in one thinker. He's 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 got a spiritual and uh, and mystical head. He's a practical person. He believes in community. He uh, you know he he jumps to get so much about what one needs to have a healthy self uh, image and a sense that one can be an agent for one's change. So I I constantly reread. Uh, Emerson's essays, and um, that's one book. I guess the other book I would throw in is I read uh, Walden a lot, and then finally uh, I studied Richard Rorty's work. I don't always agree with Rorty, but I find Rorty's work really, really uh, uh, evocative, and so I constantly reread uh, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity, which is uh, one of the books that got Rorty in the most trouble. Tell me the most profound quote, if I can use that description, that you ever heard that has to do with money? It's easy. Um, it's Benjamin Franklin, who, by the way, is uh, who is caricatured way too much. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was a brilliant, brilliant man and one of the original American philosophers. Uh, penny saved is a penny earned, and if you if you give that some thought, you'll see why that's a very profound. Um, observation, uh, an observation made when he was a pretty young man, actually. But that 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 kind of that kind of goes into what I was saying before about you know about the about the importance of money. Um, you know, I'm not a billionaire or anything, but I've always been a a, a big saver, and uh, you know, feared um, not having the ability to take care of my responsibilities because I didn't have enough money. David, it's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot and I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I look forward to it again. Thanks a lot, Maisha. No problem, no problem. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.